And the reason we're nervous is because we've been told our whole life and our whole career to don't say anything, don't ruffle any feathers. But I can tell you from our perspective, having 400 employees working remote has been surprisingly, uh, it has gone quite well. That's Seattle Mariners player D. Gordon, followed by Mike Malahan, Vice President of AIM Consulting. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. The Seattle Mariners aired a program called Black Voices in Baseball on YouTube last week. Mariners broadcaster David Sims hosted the program. And Mariner players Dee Gordon, J.P. Crawford, Kyle Lewis, and Shed Long Jr. all participated. Also today, Mike Malahan, Vice President of AIM Consulting, an IT company. He'll talk about how his company is functioning with 400 employees working remotely. Also, does he think this would be a good time to start a business? I have received some very positive feedback on two successive shows I aired on civil rights during the 1960s. One show highlighted speeches from Dr. Martin Luther King. The second show featured three leaders who helped make the Voting Rights Act a reality and engineered the most sweeping advancements in civil rights legislation history. Without Dr. King and these three leaders, we would not even be close to where we are today in terms of civil rights. Imagine that. To find out who the three leaders are, you'll just have to listen to the podcast. The question now is, will we make good on our pledge as a country that all men are created equal? If you would like to listen to the podcast, Google KKNW, then click on to podcasts. A page will appear with all of the radio shows airing on KKNW. Go to the very bottom of the page and then click on to Voices of Experience and you are there. Back with David Sims and Seattle Mariner players in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. The Seattle Mariners broadcasted a 60-minute program on YouTube called Black Voices in Baseball. Mariners broadcaster David Sims hosted four current Seattle Mariner African-American baseball players, Dee Gordon, J.P. Crawford, Kyle Lewis, and Shed Long Jr. I'm going to play about eight minutes of this exchange among the foreign Mariner players. If you want to hear or view the entire broadcast, Google Black Voices in Baseball. Let's start with David Sims. We want to talk about your experiences being the young black men in major league, in, in baseball, working your way through the minor leagues to the show. Indeed, you're the senior man here. You're the dean of the group here. Why don't you get this thing started, man? I, I, I was just curious, just an overall comment of what it's been like, to, because our numbers are small, just 68 guys last year in the major leagues. Uh, first off, I want to, I think I speak for everyone on the panel because we're all the current players. And I just want to say, we're scared to say this. We're not like, we're not like gun hole about saying this. We're nervous, you know? Uh, and the reason we're nervous is because we've been told our whole life and our whole career to don't say anything, don't ruffle any feathers, don't pretty much stand up for yourself as a man. You know what I'm saying? And 
your family's name. You know, my experience is half of the reason I didn't play baseball until high school. You know, uh, that's why I wanted to play basketball. It was it was easier. It was easier to be to be, you know, the man on the basketball court. You know, uh, in high school, I was our best hitter. I'm the only second is only two major leaguers from my hometown. And it's my dad and I. I didn't even play in an all-star game. Like, you know, that's that starts there, you know, and it it continues you up through college, the minors, you know, uh it's it's been tough. You know, being a black baseball player isn't easy at all. Uh any specific hear, examples or anecdotes that you could you could uh, share? Uh I had a manager and I'm not gonna say on what level tell me in not so many words, he'd rather take a white player than myself. You know, he's he put it in a different way saying, Do I like foot do I like football? He asked me, Do I like football? And I said, Yes, sir, I do. He said, uh, you know the black quarterback? The one who can win you some games, he can do some things, he can run around, but he makes too many mistakes. Uh, I'd rather take the white quarterback who's not going to lose me in the game. And that hurt. That that definitely hurt. That that in itself, you know, uh, that that's part of it. Uh, and it, it hurts, you know. I can talk about just looking at the comments for the Mariners post. The, the things that are said by people who want our autographs are absolutely horrible. But Amen. it... But if I don't sign little Johnny's ball, his day is ruined. But you, you, this is what you're teaching, little Johnny. That's what being black in baseball is. Okay. All right. Uh, Kyle, you're, you know, you got 18 games under your belt. Player of the year a few years ago coming out of uh, Mercer, number one choice of the Mariners. Uh, your experience is not as wide and varied as D, but what have you experienced to this point? Um, you know, coming up through high school and, um, kind of being a relative late bloomer, you know, really thought that I was going to be able to explode onto the scene late in my high school career, early college career, and just wasn't really able to get any recognition. Nobody was cutting me any slack. I was getting labeled as raw in situations where I had more advanced um, hitting skills and whatnot, you know, than a lot of my counterparts. And I'm always getting labeled as raw, getting slapped, you know, titles that, I felt like didn't apply, you know, and then coming up through the minor leagues um, in a certain season, you know, I'm doing really well, getting chirped by the fans, but, you know, that's normal, normal things I'm thinking. And I get back to my locker and there's a ball in my locker that says learn to swim. And uh, never, nobody said anything. Everybody's sitting around tight lipped, you know, and couldn't, wasn't really getting a lot of support from my teammates, you know, as if they, none of them supposedly knew what happened and somehow nobody had any idea, you know, and only people that would have had access to that deep into the locker room would have been probably a teammate, you know, and, uh, you know, ever since then, that's always kind of stuck with me a little bit. And that's kind of, that's stung pretty good. I feel like you're walking through a minefield. Yeah. JP, what about you? Oh, I, I, <laughs> thankfully I never really had to deal with anything crazy like my fellow teammates here, but, um, just growing up, I was always that one black kid on the team where I'm from. And uh, my dad always told me and my sister, you know, we always got to be 
I always got to be better. I always got to be one step better. Always one step ahead at all times because, you know, it's not fair. You make one little mistake, you're done. It, it's sad to say, but we don't get the chances. We don't get all that stuff that other people get. So my dad taught us, you know, always stay ready, stay sharp, and, you know, don't let this opportunity slip away at all because this is literally you, got, you get one chance. You get one chance. You're already down two strikes. This is your last strike. You know what I'm saying? So it's just tough, man. Chad, I met your mom and dad. I'm sure they taught you the same lessons, right? Definitely did. I mean, you know, growing up in Alabama, you know, I went I went through a lot. Um, I mean, I had situations in high school. I had situations growing up as a kid, you know, where I didn't get picked on the team just because they didn't want any black kids on the team. Or, you know, even in high school, at the end of my high school career, they they picked, like, the player of the year for where we're from. And, I mean, my stats was unbelievable. But And I was the one that got drafted from where we're from. Nobody else had ever gotten drafted out of high school. And I didn't even win, like, player of the year. I didn't get any, like, honorable mention for All-State. Like, it was crazy. But, I mean, it was only for one reason. It was just because of the color of my skin. You know, and everyone knew that. And still to this day, it's like people ask me, like, how were you never talked about and you're the person that's around here that's in the big leagues? Like, we don't have anybody else that's in the pro. And, like, I mean, there was a school two minutes away from my house that didn't even offer me. You know, so it was just stuff like that growing up. And it kind of, it kind of molded me. And I kind of, like, just dealt with what it was, and I'm just like, okay, this is what it is, and it is what it is. So when I got into pro baseball, there were situations that would happen, racist situations, but it's like, that's the way the world is, you know I mean? I grew up in it so much, it's just like, I'm numb to it, you know? It's like, you see it, and you keep on moving. That's just a slice of a 60-minute conversation with David Sims as host and four current Seattle Mariner baseball players, D. Gordon, J.P. Crawford, Kyle Lewis, and Shed Long Jr. Just Google Black Voices in Baseball if you want to hear the entire broadcast. When I was watching this conversation, a memory jumped out at me. I thought what I was remembering took place in the 1980s. This was when a former Major League Baseball player and then current vice president of the L.A. Dodgers, Al Campanis, had this exchange with ABC's Nightline host, Ted Koppel. Why is it that there are no black managers, no black general managers, no black owners? Well, Mr. Koppel, there have been some black managers, but I, I, I really can't answer that question directly. The only thing I can say is that you have to pay your dues when you become a manager. Uh, generally, you have to go to minor leagues. There's not very much pay involved. And some of the better known black players have been able to get into other fields and make a pretty good living in that way. Yeah, but you know in your heart of hearts, and we're going to take a break for a commercial, you know that that's a lot of baloney. I mean, there, there are a lot of black <laughs> players, there are a lot of great black baseball men who would dearly love to be in managerial positions. And I guess what I'm really asking you is to, you know, peel it away a little bit. Just tell me, why do you think it is? Is there still that much prejudice in baseball today? No, I don't believe it's prejudice. I, I, I truly believe that they may not have some of the uh, necessities to uh, be, uh, let's say, a field manager or perhaps a, a general manager. You really believe that? Well, I don't say that they're all of them, but there certainly are short 
How many quarterbacks do you have? How many pitchers do you have that are black? It, it same yeah, but thing I mean, applies. you know, I got to tell you, that sounds like the same kind of garbage we were hearing 40 years ago about players when they when they were saying, ah, not 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 really, not well, really cut out. You remember the days, you know, they hit a black football player in the knees, and you know, no, that really sounds like garbage. If you if you forget no, that, so it's not it's not garbage, Mr. Koppel, because uh, I played on a on a college team, and the center fielder was black, and then the backfield at NYU with a fullback who was black. Never knew the difference of whether he was black or white. We were teammates. So it just might be that they, they why are, are black uh, men or black people not good swimmers? Because they don't have the buoyancy. Oh, I, 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 it, it may just be that they don't have access to all the country clubs and the pools. Now, this conversation did take place in 1987. Al Campanis was rightfully fired for those remarks. I can't say if this was the prevailing attitude at the time, but I did know that many people in my bubble felt this way. Now, as a young boy in the 1960s, I do think this was the prevailing attitude because a number of adults, I would hear their conversations and I'd overhear what they had to say. Many believe this. Fortunately for me and my brothers, my father and mother weren't two of them. If you're fairly young, the 1980s may seem like a long time ago, but it's 2020 and current Seattle Mariner player D. Gordon said that he and other Mariner players participating in this Black Voices in Baseball broadcast were nervous about speaking out, even now. They were told their entire lives not to say anything that may draw attention to themselves. Just do your job, keep your head down, and don't rock the boat. Because if you do, that could be the end of your career. I think that Colin Kaepernick would agree with that assessment. Again, I suggest you Google and watch Black Voices in Baseball. I've collected quotes over the years, and I'd like to share some of those with you today. I think they're very pertinent to what we're going through, some more than others, but uh, it kind of sums up the atmosphere we're going through right now. I don't believe in a law that prevents a man from getting rich. It would do more harm than good. So while we do not propose any war upon capitalism, we do wish to allow the humblest man an equal chance to get rich with everyone else. That's Abraham Lincoln. Imagine that you are an idiot. Then imagine yourself as a member of Congress. Wait a minute, I repeated myself. Mark Twain. Well, Mr. Twain, just say what's on your mind. Don't hold back. And he he really didn't. I like this next quote because it's shortened to the point and it says so much. You cannot solve a problem with the same mindset that created it. Albert Einstein. I think this is the best definition of government that I've ever heard. The moral test of government is how that government treats those who are in the dawn of life, the children, those who are in the twilight of life, the elderly, and those who are in the shadows of life the sick and the needy, Hubert H. Humphrey. Every day, do something that terrifies you, Gloria Steinem. I think all leaders should think about this strongly because it's so true. Judgments in history seldom coincides with the tempers of the moment, Adley E. Stevenson. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. 
Ecclesiatus. That quote is from 500 years BC. And I think essentially what it says is that if we don't understand or learn from history, we're bound to repeat it. There's nothing new under the sun. A lot of what's been happening now has been happening many times before. Are you thinking about self-employment? Visit Amazon or order a book called Pre-Flight Checklist. Is self-employment for you? Pre-Flight addresses eight myths surrounding self-employment and includes a self-employment quiz. The higher you score, the higher your prospects for success. Visit Amazon Books and input Pre-Flight Checklist. That's Pre-Flight Checklist. Mike Malahan, Vice President of AIM Consulting, an IT company with a local office anchored in Bellevue. I don't have to tell anyone listening to this show that our world has changed dramatically over the last several months. There are many people projecting what the future will look like when we begin to return to some normalcy. I thought Mike, being in the business that he is in, might have some good suggestions for us to consider. Like, for example... Is this a good time to start a business? What should companies do to make it through these challenging times? I first asked Mike to give us an overview of AIM Consulting before we get into the other questions. AIM is an information technology consultancy, and we're based out of Bellevue, Washington, with offices in Houston, Chicago, Minneapolis, and Denver. And our offerings are based around application development, data and analytics, cloud and infrastructure, digital experience, and delivery leadership. We're about a 400-person company, and uh, we have a pretty diverse customer base from everything from retail, uh, oil and gas, biogenetics, life sciences, automotive, and everything in between. All over the board. How long has the company been around? The company's been around, uh, I think we're close to 13 years now. Okay. And uh, what does a vice president of consulting do? My job, and I mentioned those core offerings or areas, those practice areas roll up to me in the Seattle office. So uh, along with organizing the resources to execute underneath those practices, I'm also focusing the team on what technology stacks and what verticals and, and what resource areas we need to focus on as we develop our company and adapt to not just changes in our economy and and everything else that's going on right now, but technology in general, which is changing at a pretty rapid rate. Yeah. And sometimes when I look at a company like yours, an IT company, you're positioned pretty well right now, I would think. We are. And to be honest, we weren't sure how we would be positioned with everything that's going on, but it's pretty remarkable that technology can ease a lot of the constraints that happen with the isolation that people have providing access through a technology medium to products and services is certainly one way to help companies uh, reach their customers. And we're definitely well aligned to help resolve those issues with our customers. Is it too early or are you having discussions now of what your company will look like and a lot of your customers will look like, let's say, in the next six months or so? Is it still kind of like, let's just see how this thing unfolds and not make any dramatic decisions now? That's certainly the key question, and uh, we meet on a weekly basis, our, our leadership team, and we talk about 
you know, what, what is going on right now that is affecting our customers and how the climate is changing and what we need to address. And, and frankly, the changes are still happening pretty rapidly. And so you think of things like our, uh, the rental car industry and travel, it's very fluid how they're reacting and what their plans are for the future. And so we're still along for the ride. You know, we're, we're certainly there to help them uh, execute their plans, but I, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty in the next six to nine months to really know how things are going to play out. What would you suggest a company do now in terms of looking forward, not getting too far ahead of themselves and staying grounded? Do you have any kind of ideas that you'd suggest that they really take a strong look at? I do. One is adapt, of course, and I, I see, thankfully, that we're integrated with a lot of large enterprise customers as well as some mid-sized companies. And we've been able to see a multitude of different plans executed in uh, the last two to three months. And my recommendation and the ones that are successful right now are the ones that are acting quickly. There's a lot of methodologies in product development, application development, and leadership around failing fast and and executing quickly. Um, these companies that are trying things uh, in a rapid pace and focusing on providing customer service and getting their products to market to the best of their abilities are still having a lot of success. And so definitely adapting is is a recommendation. Another one I have is, is more focused on maybe a little bit looking in the rearview mirror, but this is a disaster recovery scenario for a lot of companies. And it, it may be one that's not in a playbook for a lot of companies. So my recommendation is we all need to learn some lessons from this particular scenario and knowing that there could be a very large disruption in your ability to reach your customers and, and, and uh, deliver your products. And you need to have a plan for that. And so as we work our way out of this situation, uh, my recommendation to companies is to start building that plan if you haven't already. And think of things like having your employees work remotely and how that impacts your ability to lead and manage them. These are all things that are a part of a successful business delivery plan. Do you think that a lot of people will be working remotely going forward? Or is that being exaggerated? You know, you hear downtown Seattle and, and even downtown Bellevue, all this real estate that's been built, and now all of a sudden these buildings are going to be empty. I'm sure the answer is somewhere in between, but and the results are still somewhat out on that. But I can tell you from our perspective, having 400 employees working remote has been surprisingly, uh, it has gone quite well. Resources have adapted. Uh, it's, it's not been easy as we've all probably had to find ways to set up offices in our homes and internet connectivity. And there's always challenges using meeting technologies online. But I think in the heavy technology spaces where resources can work in in a remote environment, I, I think a lot of companies will be much more willing uh, in the next couple of years to allow that to happen. And I think the productivity will be, it will be on par as the way it's been in the past. So Frankly, there's just a social side of human interaction that people do enjoy. We've seen an interesting dynamic with a lot of our employees that the isolation isn't pleasant for a lot of people, and uh, they do want to have those interactions still. So there's a lot to be addressed and, and unpackaged in that question, but I, I do think there will be some willingness to allow more and more employees to work from home. 
Yeah, and it doesn't have to be absolutely one way or the other. There can be some in between here. I mean, maybe some employees come in Monday, Wednesday, Friday from, you know, let's say nine o'clock to three o'clock or things like that. Yeah, I, I agree. It is going to be some kind of a mixed plan like that. And I think for those people that just work better from an office environment, um, assuming it's safe to do so, I, I think those opportunities will still always be there, maybe in just a smaller capacity. Do you think this is a good time to start a business? And if so, what kind of companies do you think will maybe thrive more than others? Yeah, I do think it is a good time for the right mindset. I think people that are entrepreneurs in nature, that are forward-looking and and adapt well to a changing environment, I think they, this is a great time because, for one, there's a lot of resources available to them. People are away from the distractions of an office. Their calendars are very well established with time available for uh, mentoring and um, discussions about opportunities to help each other. And I think this is a great time to access that knowledge uh, and experience. And you can start building, you know, a customer base now. You can start building excitement around your products and you can do it in a way that hasn't been done previously. You know, pure digital marketing and reaching resources in a new medium. It's actually quite exciting if you have the right mindset. Technology right now is, uh, you know, a way of solving a lot of problems from every aspect of our lives. And uh, the companies that are faced with some of these challenges, they've got a lot to think about and a lot to develop in the next coming months and years to address something that came on so quickly. There's a lot of opportunity in there. um, And I'm sure there will be a lot of companies that aren't successful and aren't able to continue because of these things. It's certainly going to be an interesting time, but I, I think as human beings, we all want to march on, and um, I, I'm I'm fairly interested to see what happens next because I think there's going to be a lot of innovation in the next coming year or two years that's going to potentially change all of our lives. Just before we go, I wanted to make an observation, and that is like Amazon, of course, has taken over the world in many ways. Amazon has changed retail dramatically. Don't even need to go into any more detail than that on it. And my feeling is that this is the direction we were headed anyhow. This just shortened that timetable. You're absolutely right. Um, Amazon is a great example. And there's several more out there that are changing the way there's less and less need for physical interactions to consume products. And companies and retailers are always looking for ways to make that interaction simpler, easier, and of course, faster. That's Mike Malahan, Vice President of AIM Consulting with an office in Bellevue. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. I thank the Seattle Mariners and the four black athletes, D. Gordon, J.P. Crawford, Kyle Lewis, and Shed Long Jr. for helping educate us on what it's like to be black and trying to break into a career in pro baseball. I urge you to watch the entire broadcast. Just Google Black Voices in Baseball. That simple. My thanks to Mike Malahan, Vice President of AIM Consulting, for sharing his expertise with us as well. A reminder that Voices of Experience airs Tuesday afternoons at 4.30 p.m. 
and Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m. Have a great rest of the week.